Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. Five, four, three, two, one. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. A confirmed attack is taking place against the United States. Aliens from an unknown location have been reported in multiple states. We are controlling transmission. There is another world that awaits, far beyond what we can see and feel. A place that's anything but ordinary. What you believe might not be. Step into the zone of the best unknown. UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, conspiracies and cover-ups. And to the paranormal we go. From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, welcome one and all once again to the program that is out there somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal. As always, I appreciate you being here on the program as we talk about those subjects off the beaten path. Now, that certainly is for sure. You know, it took a couple of months, uh, but we finally did get some actual validation as far as the claims that were made by Mr. David Grush, a whistleblower who came forward last summer. And uh, what Mr. Grush said uh, was that the United States was in possession of alien craft or, or crash debris and non-human entities, uh, at least at one point in time, and has concealed that, has kept that from the masses. And at first, uh, you know, many people were skeptical, not really sure what to make of it, understandably so. Uh, He has credentials, was part of the UAP task force, intelligence officer, uh, by all accounts, basically just gave it all up because he wanted to do what he is doing now, which is blowing the whistle on this kind of stuff, which you can't do uh, when you're still on the inside. And then over time, and in fact, if you know the, the timeline of this all, it was very quickly after Mr. Grush made these claims in which there was action in the U.S. Congress continued action in the U.S. Congress, I should say, because uh, there had been much 
uh, up to that point, and it continued. We're talking about hearings, legislation. These are things, of course, that we have covered at length on this program. And just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, was the latest development, a private, we're calling it private, not necessarily top secret, because there has been a little bit of information that has leaked from those proceedings. For instance, uh, the those involved seem to have uh, received uh, clarity on the subject that they hadn't in previous proceedings. And uh, they went as far as saying that, you know, Mr. Grush, uh, his claims have merit. Those are their words, that Mr. Grush's claims have merit. So if the, uh, if the United States and perhaps other governments are indeed in possession of crash debris, if we want to call them extraterrestrial biological entities, non-human entities... It sounds like that is uh, becoming uh, closer to being confirmed uh, by at least an official body. You know, there were a couple of cases of late, which is going to bring us all the way around to the topic that we're going to discuss tonight. Recently, there were two cases that went viral within the past year that involved aliens, some sort of invasion. I think you know the ones that I'm talking about. Last summer, it was a family in Las Vegas who called 911 saying that there was this flash in the sky, which was captured on some actual police dash cams, verified by some officers who had indeed seen the flash of light whether or not that was an excuse for this family to claim that there were 8 to 10 foot tall extraterrestrials or non-humans in their backyard, uh, we'll never know. Is it a tall tale? Or were there actually extraterrestrials in their backyard? And of course, by now, you've heard the 911 call from uh, an individual saying, you know, well, a little bit freaked out by the whole experience and, and saying that they were definitely not human, uh, that, that, that they were tall, describing features like their eyes and um, that sort of thing. And then, of course, it was just a few weeks ago. I wasn't going to talk about it at, at first, but you'll see why I decided to bring it into the conversation tonight. Because I thought, you know, this is was just a, a stunt. Maybe this was uh, an over uh, response on the part of the police. I'm talking about what happened at the Miami Mall, at a mall in Miami, just a couple of weeks ago. There was a, a mass response of police. I hadn't seen anything quite like it. It had to, I, I mean, it had to have been 50 to 100 police cars. You can go look at the video online. A massive response by police to a mall. Was it teens who were fighting? Yeah, there was, a, there was a fight that was captured on camera. I mean, teens fight in large cities. I don't know how common that is. 
And then there was some blurry video that went around, uh, make of it as you wish, that may have shown one of these creatures that uh, caused all this pandemonium walking around near the mall. And then we find out this. We find out that after the briefing... A top-secret document was then declassified, and it was declassified because of the fact that there was public pressure for this information that was coming out. We're talking about Inspector General Robert Storch, who said given the significant public interest in how the Department of Defense is addressing UAPs. We are releasing this unclassified summary to be as transparent as possible with the American people about our oversight work on this important issue. Now, many times you have to read between the lines. The government is not going to come out and say the words alien invasion. It's not sexy. It seems kind of sci-fi-ish. And they're going to find some you know, PC, by-the-book way of writing it. But, but we know what they're talking about here. The DOD, Office of Inspector General, Department of Defense, of course, also found that the DOD's lack of a comprehensive, coordinated approach to address UAP may pose a threat to military forces and national security. It's not the UAP that posed this threat to military forces and national security, but rather who is behind these uh, UAP. Is it uh, powered by some sort of extraterrestrial entity? It, it doesn't sound like we are at war with um, automation, something that is that is. You know, powered by artificial intelligence, at least they don't say that here. All signs indicate that they're talking about uh, perhaps a superior race of extraterrestrials who are involved here, and that's really the threat in which we face. Unless you see it another way. 503-506-0396. That's 503-506-0396 in the United States and Canada. And you are welcome to weigh in using that number at uh, any point in our conversation tonight. But it um, goes on to say, again, that the DOD OIG found that the Department of Defense does not have a comprehensive, coordinated approach to address... UAP. For example, they determined that DOD components developed developed varying processes to collect, analyze, and identify UAP incidents. So that tells you a couple of things. Number one, they are really not capable of tracking and analyzing any of this. Technically, and also, we don't have the resources, we don't have uh, the coordination 
basically the left and the right hand aren't talking to each other. You know, typical government stuff. And uh, by the way, this whole, you know, talk of, um, you know, an an alien invasion, uh, Avi Loeb has joined the conversation, the Harvard uh, professor, who says that an alien invasion of Earth is possible and that humans can actually learn from extraterrestrials whose intelligence would far exceed that of the people, which is something that I agree with. And in that case, why would they want to even show themselves to us? So we have, uh, we have a lot on the table here. We have claims that have been verified to be legit from a whistleblower. Secret meetings that have continued to happen in Congress. Remember, after the briefings that preceded the last two years, there were the closed doors proceedings, of course, that were basically the the, the top secret stuff. Uh, NASA has, of course, been involved with with their meetings as well. A committee sends a letter. They get a, a secret UFO briefing behind closed doors. And voila, the whistleblower's complaints have at least been, he, he's been vindicated in some regards. At least that's what the reaction is coming out of this uh, meeting that happened back on January 12th. And what do you make of these uh, these cases of um, you know aliens in the news? Are are these just uh, is this just a case of of hysteria? Somebody trying to uh, take advantage of um, you know a little bit of publicity or or you know having a little bit of fun with us? Maybe things getting a little bit out of control? Maybe slow news days? I don't know. But both of those stories taking off and and going viral. Some uh, claims, of course, by our government after caving into public pressure in the name of transparency coming out and saying that we're not equipped to prevent ourselves against an alien invasion. And on top of that, we really are not doing a good job and, and nor can we be expected to be doing a good job when it comes to tracking these things either. We'll continue our program and introduce you to our guest coming up. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. Into the paranormal. Are we indefensible? That's the question tonight. I'm Jeremy Scott. I'm so glad to welcome back our guest tonight. We've had him several times, and it is always a pleasure uh, to welcome Paul Anthony Wallace to the program as we welcome back uh, another in his series of uh, wonderful books that I uh, highly recommend about to come out. Uh, But, of course, the time is now to have him talk about all of this because of... uh, 
all that has taken place. Paul Anthony Wallace, an internationally best-selling author whose books probe the world's ancestral narratives for their insight into human origins and human potential. He served for 33 years as a church doctor, theological educator, and archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. His best-selling Eden series has made him the go-to guy in the field of paleo contact. The latest is The Invasion of Eden, and it's so glad to have back on this program uh, Paul Anthony Wallace. Welcome. G'day, Jeremy. It's great to be with you once again. Absolutely. So uh, talk about what you mean by paleo contact for those who aren't familiar. The word paleo contact refers to the theory that our ancestors had contact with other civilizations in the deep past. And by other civilizations, I mean extraterrestrial contact. So paleo means in the beginning and contact means contact. All right. And and your your latest series, The Invasion of Eden, follows a certain progression. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with your series, outline how it has progressed up to this point, please. For sure. Well, my first book in the field of paleo contact was Escaping from Eden. And it really carries the reader with me through my experience of transitioning from mainstream Orthodox Christian belief where we're alone in the universe to suddenly realizing not only am I looking at a populated universe, but the knowledge of it is embedded in the stories of the Bible itself. And so I go into the root meanings of key words and we go into the source narratives from which the biblical writers had drawn to create the narratives of Genesis and on into the books of the Bible. And I show how when we read these alongside each other, and when we use root meanings, this other story emerges of ancient contact with extraterrestrial visitors, some of whom came and colonized our planet, and some of whom were involved in fine-tuning Homo sapiens as a species. And then the book that followed, The Scars of Eden, asked the question, so what? What difference does it make? Has it made a difference to our psychology as a species? Has it made a difference to our geopolitics? What difference does it make what I believe about human origins? And then Echoes of Eden reflects the fact that if you want to find ancient memories of ET contact, you have to go to folklore. You have to go to indigenous story all around the world. And you'll find that by amazing coincidence, not only do indigenous stories around the world reference ET contact, but what emerges from their different story of human origins is a different understanding of human potential. And so Echoes of Eden goes into some of these initiation cultures to ask, well, what is the crossover? If that is the story of our origins, then what is the destiny of Homo sapiens? What are we capable of that we haven't realized before? And it looks at the history of how the knowledge of these things has been suppressed throughout the generations and how it's always survived. And then in the Eden conspiracy, I show how that suppression was done in the Bible. And I show that the Bible itself records the process by which the kings of Israel sought to obliterate the Hebrew memory of paleo content. We have to uh, pause, but we will pick up right there when we come back with Paul Anthony Wallace. I'm Jeremy Scott. 
From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon, somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, between the paranormal and abnormal, we'll continue. This is Paranormal News. Damage to NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter is bringing the mission to an end. The spacecraft made history by pulling off the first powered flight on another world and completed a total of 72 flights, including in the extremely thin Martian atmosphere, before an emergency landing damaged its rotors, rendering it incapable of flying again. Ingenuity launched in the summer of 2020 on the underside of the Perseverance rover, which landed in 2021 and was was instrumental in picking the right path to explore the Jezero crater. The mission helped pave the way for future flights in our solar system. George Henry, Paranormal News. Committee holding a closed-door meeting about UFOs. This meeting comes after members of the committee sent a letter requesting more details about the federal government's knowledge, research, and retrieval of UFOs. They heard something that backs up the UFO whistleblower's claims. What they were able to be told was a broad confirmation of the credibility of the authenticity of Mr. Grush's claims non-human, exotic origin, vehicles that have either landed or crashed. Hold on tight. You're about to land somewhere into the pair of normal. And I'm Jeremy Scott talking with uh, Paul Anthony Wallace from the Eden series. I believe we were, uh, I, I believe we left off maybe at the the Eden conspiracy. Uh, Paul, maybe you can pick it up where we left off. I want people to see the progression or the evolution here. Sure. So in the Eden conspiracy, I show how in the beginning, uh, the Hebrew uh, people, the tribes of Israel, celebrated a whole range of beings that they had interacted with in the deep past, the Seva Hashemayim, sky armies, and then how later in the story, uh, the kings of Israel tried to stamp that memory out and replace it, lock, stock and barrel, with a religious monotheism. And so it gives that as a case study of how the narrative can be hijacked and controlled, how the indigenous memory of contact can be attempted to be stamped out, but never quite successfully. And then the new book coming out in April, here it is. This is an author's copy, The Invasion of Eden, asked the question, did our ancestors warn us about ET invasions? Is history repeating itself in the 21st century? And I've written that really to help people catch up with everything that happened in the last 12 months, because there's been such an acceleration in terms of disclosure, I think we're going to see even more in the months ahead. People are having to run to catch up with how much has been acknowledged by the authorities and try and keep their feet on the ground. 
while all this is happening. You don't want to panic at every report of a sighting here and there. Every time a congressman says, is there an existential threat? You don't want to go into a blind panic and run into your underground shelter. We've got to keep our wits about us. And so I asked the question, how did our ancestors speak to these questions? How did they deal with these very real concerns in our deep past? And can that help us shape a happy way forward? Interesting uh, premise that you're coming at that uh, from. And so tell us how it ties into basically what's happening today, everything we've discussed up to this point. Well, clearly, when the House hearing happened in July of last year, certain members of Congress were very concerned that information was being withheld, potentially illegally, from the U.S. Congress. And they were making the point that if there is a national security threat, isn't that everybody's business? If there is an existential threat hanging over the USA or the entire planet, how can that not be the business of the US Congress? And if Congress and the Pentagon has authorized somebody, and I mean David Grush, to get an overview of what contact we have, and where the program has reached, that's the reverse engineering program, by what legal basis can he be blocked from that information when he's been authorized to obtain it? And so in the absence of information, people are just left with questions. And if we're looking at an existential threat, who's responding to that? Is that the case? Is that the right way to frame contact in the present? Or is there a bigger picture to this? And I suggest from my research, yes, there's a much bigger picture to this. And we are going to do ourselves a huge favor if we can step out of that uh, moment of frustration and exasperation between Congress and the Pentagon and begin to get a bigger picture of what contact do we have? How long has it been going on? Who are we in contact with? Who is speaking for us? What decisions have been made? And what decisions are on the table right now? And I'm one of those who believes that the more scrutiny and accountability we can bring to that, the better the chances are of decisions being made that are in the interest of all of us rather than of the very few. I'm interested because you brought up, uh, well, if basically Congress is not responsible, then who is Uh, which is very interesting because that's one of the claims that Mr. Grush has made, that, look, there is something operating even above uh, Congress. Uh, There is some shadow government running things. Your thoughts on that? Well, we know that we have a military intelligence community that has information that is not going to be shared lock, stock, and barrel with Congress. The job of secret services is to find secrets and keep them. So the idea that all of a sudden, because they've been asked, they're going to tell Congress everything they know is not credible. But the question is, on what legal basis is this particular information being kept from Congress? And one of the things David Grush pointed out is that within the military intelligence community, unit from unit, don't know what's going on. So we had Sean Kirkpatrick, who for 18 months headed up Arrow, the uh, Aerial Anomalies Resolution Office, 
claiming that there had been no data indicating any level of contact or reverse engineering, which just flies in the face of what we have heard publicly from people working on the program. That's physicists like Jacques Ballet, Gary Nolan, um, Professor Gary Nolan is a microbiologist, Eric Davis is a physicist, Jacques Vallée, a physicist. When they are meeting the press and talking about what they're doing with the better materials, how can Sean Kirkpatrick stand up and say there are no better materials? So there's a lot to see here. It, interesting, because uh, Sean Kirkpatrick has continued to run his mouth. That is what got him thrown out of the position as the head of Arrow. I am now 150% totally convinced that's what happened. He has continued yes. to go after those who basically wore the witnesses that were called into some of these congressional uh, meetings. And now... He has attacked in the last few days the core, as he says, referring to the politicians, the legislators who are bringing some of these bills and who are fighting for some of this transparency. Um, I- I'm, gl- I'm glad he's gone because he did not take this seriously and he's continued to put his foot in his mouth um, long or actually not too long now that he's uh, left the post. Yes, I I agree with you, Jeremy. Uh, The day after the House hearing, Sean Kirkpatrick put out a very angry tweet saying that the House hearing was basically an insult to everyone who worked for his unit, that it was an insult to their integrity. Now, anyone who'd been following this story knew that wasn't the case. That wasn't what was up for discussion at all. The question was, was David Grush blocked? What's the legality of that blocking? No one's insulting the people who work for Arrow. And so when he said that, it looked very much like a misdirection. And then on top of that, there was a a bit of a um, a smear campaign against David Grush, thinking if we can make people think less of him, maybe the whole thing will go away. Well, all this played very, very badly. And so we had Kathleen Hicks step up and say, don't worry, everybody, I'm going to be oversighting. Sean Kirkpatrick's uh, unit, Arrow, and then a few months after that, oh, Sean Kirkpatrick is leaving. He makes the statement, I've achieved everything I said I intended to achieve within 18 months, apparently. But it was obviously because things had played out badly for him, and it gives the appearance that the escalation of David Grush's to becoming a house hearing, all this playing out in public, might have been entirely for the purpose of shifting fiefdoms so that somebody else has oversight of the program. And having oversight of the program, of course, means access to the enormous black budgets that bankroll it. And so a lot of people are asking, is this about disclosure? Because Kathleen Hicks has has talked the language of transparency and... uh, her commitment to sharing with Congress and the public everything that uh, Arrow finds out. Well, again, it's not the role of secret services to go around briefing the public on everything it's found out. So that's just not credible. It suggests that changes have been made in the name of transparency, but that something else is going on behind closed doors, and it has to do with who's running those budgets. What are your thoughts on the recent revelations that have that have come out in in, in particular regards to the fact uh, they don't come out and say it, but they're alluding to basically these UAPs posing a threat 
to our uh, military, this press release that went out on the DOD website, uh, and I'll read you part of it here. The DOD OIG found that DOD's lack of a comprehensive coordinated approach to address UAP may pose a threat to military forces and national security. That is from a document posted at dodig.mil. Uh, a press release within the just the past couple of days from the uh, Inspector General, uh, which uh, outlines what I just said and and more. Well, what concerns me about that is it sounds like it's moving in a similar direction to the conversation about military intelligence. The issue really raised by the David Grush complaint was of compartmentalization that no one was getting the overview, that uh, individual units had their information, there was no information sharing, and so there wasn't a coordinated policy. And so we're now having a similar statement made with regard to the military response. And so again, it could just be an issue to do with oversight. Who has oversight? Who's running the whole show? But while these conversations are happening, I think what's interesting for the general public is that it is an acknowledgement that the UFO phenomenon is real, that UAPs have left behind artifacts, materials, which are being studied. And then in the House hearing, we got beyond that and understood not only is it materials, not only does that include entire craft, according to the sworn witnesses, but non-human biologics slash pilots. And so the questions that flow on from that are, are these pilots alive? Are we having active contact, active conversations? Is this really another way of saying what was said by Hayam Ashed, the brigadier general who for 28 years was responsible for Israel's space security program, who said we've been in collaboration for more than 70 years? What is the nature of the contact? And when we got to questions of that order in that House hearing, that's when David Grush said, I can answer that, but it has to be in a skiff. And we have now had a skiff that's included Tim Burchett and Andy Ogles, who were two of the uh, members of Congress who were really pushing for greater accountability. What exactly they've been told, we don't know. It may be that they were simply read in to the testimony that Thomas Monheim, the Inspector General yeah, of the it's Intelligence very possible. Community. Got to pause. Paul Anthony Wallace is my guest. We'll continue our program. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal with Paul Anthony Wallace. We'll continue right after this. Into the paranormal. Jeremy Scott, so is the uh, U.S. equipped to handle an alien invasion? They say it's all hypothetical, but of course we have been around long enough to know that they uh, all things aren't hypothetical. you got to plan for the inevitable, and uh, that day may come, and we don't know when it's going to be. Uh, these things usually don't come with any sort of announcement. 
hey, we're going to invade the earth on this particular day and time. Uh, I'm fascinated to talk with Paul Anthony Wallace because he has looked uh, back uh, through uh, records and whatnot to, to bring some of this information forth. But, Paul, I wanted you to wrap up your thoughts Uh, particularly what the inspector general had to say and the recent proceedings that have happened with uh, the congressional developments here in the U.S. Yeah, so I think that uh, the congressmen who've really wanted to push for accountability have now been read in to what it was that convinced Thomas Monheim, the inspector general of the intelligence community, to allow the David Grush complaint to escalate to a House hearing. So essentially, they will now know who the 40 sworn witnesses were who've had eyes on the materials and non-human biologics that are part of the program. And they may know a little bit more about what information is going to be disclosed in the months ahead. Now, where that puts the general public, I'm not sure. But it's clear that the Pentagon is feeling the pressure. If they are using the language of transparency and accountability, they know it's because there is massive public demand for this information to be released, that the public feels it is inappropriate for trillions of dollars of public money to go into the program, but we're not allowed to know what's going on, where we're up to, who we're in contact with. And just now, Jeremy, you were asking the question, are we looking at a potential invasion? One of the questions I ask in the invasion of Eden is if we've already been invaded. Because when you go to ancestral narratives, they have some very interesting insights on the things you and I should look for, for evidence that there's already an ET influence in our geopolitics. Already? Uh, Going back how long? Well, I mean, if we listen to ancestral narratives, we're listening to experiences that are thousands and tens of thousands of years old that speak about previous experiences of invasion, previous experiences of colonization. And I think the law surrounding the modern experience of UAPs, if we listen, for instance, to Hayam Ashed, the Brigadier General who was Israel's Chief of Space Security, he says we have been in contact at a covert government level for more than seven decades, and the collaborations have been in place in all that time. So that means we're going back to the Eisenhower and Truman administrations. He's suggesting that agreements were made at that point with certain visitors. Now, he goes into some detail as to what these agreements involved, and you have to ask, if they are so advanced of us, What does an agreement mean? I mean, isn't that like a mouse agreeing with a lion that the mouse is going to get eaten? Is a collaboration really a polite way of saying we have ET oversight? And what's the difference between that and having been annexed? Yeah. And so you look through... uh, When you look through these, do you find some themes uh, or, or what? Oh, there are there are definitely themes. So whether you go to the Bible and you listen to the stories of Yahweh and the Elohim, or if you go to Hawaii and you listen to the story of the Mo'al, or if you listen to ancient Celtic stories, such as recorded by uh, Reverend Robert Kirk in the 1600s in Scotland, the themes repeat. And 
all those bringing us those stories say that when you see evidence of an uber government making decisions that appear to have no empathy in them towards the mass of humanity that's a little clue that you've got a non-human layer to the story of human governance now robert kirk who was a christian presbyterian minister in scotland in the 1600s so that's a very conservative uh, period in history he argued that we have no understanding of how the world functions until we understand the et layer and we're going to understand it some more tonight thanks to paul anthony wallace who is joining us i'm jeremy scott we are at our midway point and so we'll refresh and join you on the other side to continue our conversation. Somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal, I'm Jeremy Scott, Into the Parabnormal. There's another hour of Into the Parabnormal coming up. Hold on to your seats. The question is, maybe we have already been invaded, and then if we have once or twice or however many times been invaded, uh, might it happen again? Talking with Paul Anthony Wallace, author of the Eden series, the latest, The Invasion of Eden, coming out in April. PaulWallace.com is his website, W-A-L-L-I-S. Paul, uh, so, I mean, walk us through... uh, what you discuss for the most part in in the book here. For sure. Well, I think there's a a linchpin moment for us in recent history, which is decisions that were taken in the 1940s in the administration of President Truman. That seems to have set the agenda for the covert contact that's that's been in place since that time. Aaron Shedd says contact at a covert government level. So what's the terms of that agreement. President Eisenhower was read in to what had happened, and we know the story of his secret briefing in 1954, his dental appointment uh, in the middle of the night. And if we ask, how did he respond to that? Did he come away from his briefing thinking, I've got to warn the American people about ET contact? What did he talk about? What were his warnings about? And his warnings were about guarding our way of life and that if the military-industrial complex had too much influence, then we could damage our own way of life. And he talked about an unwarranted and potentially disastrous impact on society if the military-industrial complex had too much power. Now, we should clarify who we mean. He's talking about aerospace corporations. He's talking about... Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Skunk Works, Lockheed Martin, 
those are the corporations that are running the program. And it is the representatives of those corporations who are the most read in, who are the most involved in the covert contact that we have. That's what emerges from the Wilson Davis note that uh, some people watching will know about. And this is where Admiral Wilson, who headed up one of the units within the military intelligence community, was complaining he wasn't allowed to know what contact was there. It was his job to know, but he wasn't allowed to know. He wasn't allowed to know where the program had reached. It was his job to know, he wasn't allowed. And when Eric Davis asked him, well, who is allowed? He said, corporate types. And he's talking about those corporations. So you and I want to know, well, all right, what decisions are being made? In whose interests? And when will the story change? When we become a spacefaring civilization, when we've reverse engineered the ability to manipulate space-time, is that when the public gets read into this and our whole, whole geopolitical system changes? This is an echo of what's happened in the past, because if you go to the stories of the Jaguar dynasty in the Yucatan Peninsula or the stories of the people of Yahweh in the Old Testament, you will find people trying to reverse engineer technology so that they can get into a conversation with what Hamashed calls the Galactic Federation, so that the public can be part of a conversation with cosmic neighbors. And in the invasion of Eden, I talk about the fact that ancestral story says that contact has never been limited to covert government, that experience of contact is a grassroots phenomenon and that we can be involved in pushing the human story forwards without twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the politicians to do it for us. Interesting. So the people have the power, is what you're saying. We have far more power than we think. I mean, even looking at how the Pentagon is now responding to the pressure for accountability, I think we're going to get more disclosures uh, in the months ahead. A lot has been acknowledged in the last four years. I mean, prior to 2019, ufology wasn't even acknowledged as a phenomenon. And now we've got official acknowledgement of possession of entire craft that we've been seeking to reverse engineer these materials for 70 years, that we're in contact with non-human biologics. That's a lot of information to absorb just in the last four years. I think we're going to see a lot more information in the months ahead. Yeah. Now, when you look through some of these uh, you know, ancient texts and whatnots, what kinds of things are described? Well, what's interesting is that when our ancestors talked about being invaded or annexed, they weren't concerned with um, craft in the sky. That's not what the conversation is mainly about. What they talk about is shifts in culture. So when the Mo'o came to ancient Hawaii, what the people was concerned about was they lost power, that they lost access to resources and land, and that the land was now privatized by the higher-ups, a money system was introduced so that the general population lost power, lost wealth, was more and more dependent, and society was more stratified. And when you go to stories from other parts of the world, you've got that similar concern. You go to the Bible, and the arrival of the Elohim is described in Deuteronomy 32, where the lands are being carved up. And now the new non-human landlords are going to tax people and tithe people and cream off the first fruits. 
so that we there's this engineered scarcity so that we're that little bit more stressed so that we're a little bit more dependent we don't have the freedom to enjoy life and ask heaps of questions and i think we should look for signs of that are we being pushed into stress arousal or engineered scarcity and how do we respond to that i think our ancestors have survived all these things in the past and often they've done it by finding more local economies learning how to act in solidarity learning how to speak to local government and federal government in solidarity because i think when the government senses oh there's a mass movement here or there's a mass question being asked government has to respond to that but i think we have to be what eisenhower called an alert and knowledgeable citizenry to do that and what he was saying there is that the engine room for disclosure is never going to be from the top down it's been going to be from the grassroots when you um look at at this uh what do our ancestors say that they have encountered when they say that they've encountered these kinds of phenomena how how long back do these records go well if we listen to the stories of yahweh and the elohim in the bible we're going back to about 10,000 years before present and they describe a period where we were colonized visibly where there were ets on the planet's surface who were our new overlords where the land had been carved up so that each territory had its non-human overlord and then a human public service and then we're just kowtowing and providing all the resources that the the powerful one wants and then we reach a point where there's a handover to human kings and queens who then govern on behalf of the beings who were here before that story of a handover you can find in egyptian story and sumerian story it's there in the biblical story in african story you can hear it in nigeria hear it in the hawaiian story of the anunu and the mo'o and so it's talking about the dynamics of government and it shows how when these elohim governed it was governance by fear it was governance by violence it was governance by scarcity and we can see how some of those levers were pulled by the human successors who followed them and so you've got stories in the bible that talk about when the leaders of the tribes of israel came together and said no we don't want to be governed this way anymore and they sack yahweh and they replace him with a, a human king and then they have to struggle with the fact that there's a hidden hand in their geopolitics so all these stories are told to encourage us that change is possible but we have to move beyond the dynamic of fear and terror to a dynamic of solidarity and cooperation that's how we bring change whether we're living in a kingdom or a democracy or an autocracy that's how we find our people power when we speak with one voice when we act together we say no non scrutiny is not an option non accountability is not an option those 9 trillion missing dollars are our dollars and we won't tolerate this level of secrecy any longer i'll take a little bit of it a little bit of that how about you paul i mean if they're handing it out well yeah exactly whose money is it and <laughs> fair's fair if we have a program that's seeking to reproduce very advanced technology it is going to take a lot of money to do that and i don't resent that if it means we become a spacefaring community and the whole dynamic changes 
But I think for there to be no accountability over that much missing money, I think in a democracy that really is not acceptable. Would we need a lot of money to catch up because we are so far behind technologically speaking? I think we're behind in terms of being able to create it for ourselves. But if we take Hamishad seriously, we have access to our neighbor's technology. He is saying we're already involved in collaborations with people who have interstellar technology. He is saying we're involved with our neighbors in collaborations on Mars and that we have human workers on Mars because we're using their tech. So we have access to it. But the bar that's been set, apparently, so says Hamashed, and I take him seriously, is that our relationship with our neighbors will only change when we can produce this technology for ourselves, when we truly are spacefarers on our own ticket. That's when we become part of a federation of spacefaring civilizations. Uh, now, the sixth man to walk on the moon, um, Ed Mitchell, believed that we were nearing that point and that we should put all our lighter scrutiny upon it because he believed that things would change very much for the better when we reach that bar and when we can have open conversations because so much is available to humanity when this comes out into the open. So much about our economics and politics would change if we get into a world of free energy. So much corruption in the world of politics will fall to the ground once we're no longer dependent on power industries and oil industries. Ed Mitchell believed we're absolutely on the brink of that. So let's shine our accountability on that and say, bring it on, because we're ready for that change. Is this contact that we've had over these 10,000 or so years involved um, beings of many different forms? Many different forms and many different agendas. So I think one of the problems with the current conversation between Congress and the Pentagon is it frames everything as security threat or existential threat. But when we go to ancestral story, we hear that some of our visitors were violent, some were colonizers, but others came because they wanted to support the progress of homo sapiens. And we have stories all around the world that talk about great leaps forward being made in material science in agricultural science, in our ability to operate as a society because of interventions. Right. From- we, have to, we have to break there. We'll pick that right back up. Paul Anthony Wallace is my guest tonight. This is Jeremy Scott, Into the Paranormal. We'll be right back. Into the Paranormal. Jeremy Scott, my guest tonight, Paul Anthony Wallace, paulwallace.com, his website, author of the Eden series, the latest, The Invasion of Eden, will be due out in uh, just a couple of months, and uh, we've been talking uh, about uh, the ancestral narratives when it comes to uh, this ET contact and whether or not we've been invaded in the past. Uh, We know that contact goes back many thousands of years uh, that we have met many different forms of entities along the way who have many different agendas. And, Paul, you were telling us about uh, that, so I'll let you continue. 
Absolutely. I should just say my website is actually paulantonywallace.com. Oh, thank you for the correction. Fiskind. No worries. And fifthkind.tv. So yes, in the past, the vision of people coming from the stars to planet Earth was not all doom and gloom. Yes, there were stories of invasions, but there were stories of helpers too. And I'll give an example. If you go to Papua New Guinea and uh, listen to the stories of the Labu people who speak in the Yahapa dialect, get them to count from one to five, and they'll say, Toguato, Salu, Sede, Soha, Maipi. And then ask them to translate those words, and you'll realize that it's the story of human origins rooted in contact with another species. So the numbers one to five, this is the meanings. Friends in ship, moon school, spirit dance, needle and jar, spirit goes up. And what that's saying is friends arrived in a ship and they came to teach us. It was a moon school. People from the stars are teaching us. And then spirit dance, that's talking about us interacting with these other beings. Needle and jar, could be medication, could be some kind of an upgrade. And then spirit goes up, it means they're going back up into space. And that's a very neat summary of a narrative that exists in cultures all around the world that talks about helpers coming. They teach us agronomy. They teach us which plants are good for food and which are good for medicines, which are good for higher consciousness. In these stories that date from about 10,000 years ago, they teach us how to build cities, how to have a legal system, a money system, uh, record-keeping, writing, culture. If you go to the Book of Enoch, they teach us about clothing and makeup. There's this real cultural exchange going on with our neighbours. So I think it's a shame when we go to uh, the house hearing and hear language that's purely militarised, national security, existential threat, and we leave out the other half of the picture, and that is the potential of a phenomenal upgrade to the human experience, not just being able to fly through the cosmos, but actually be able to improve the whole experience of humanity on planet Earth. If that's in the offing, if that's possible because these helpers are still part of the matrix, then we should be thinking about a much broader conversation. It's not just friends or foe. It's not can we shoot them down. It's not are we defensible. It is how can we improve our experience as citizens of the cosmos. But we do know that some of these visitors have been violent in the past, right, Paul? Oh, yes. In the past, some of them were very violent, and the Bible is very specific about how violent and what and technology they used against us. We will dive into that. Paul Anthony Wallace dot com his website paul anthony wallace dot com author of the eden series the invasion of eden coming soon i'm jeremy scott somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal will continue
This is Paranormal News. For the first time, a human has been implanted with Elon Musk's Neuralink chip in his brain. He announced this week that the patient is showing promising neuron spike detection with cells using electrical chemical signals to send information around the brain to the body. This, um, I think, has a very good purpose, uh, which is to cure important diseases um, and ultimately to help secure humanity's Uh, future as a civilization. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration gave the go-ahead last year for the company to proceed with human trials. The brain-computer interface is implanted by a robot in a region of the brain that controls movement. Neuralink intends to enable people to control a computer cursor or keyboard with their thoughts. George Henry, Paranormal News. Rumors of aliens invading Miami are going viral on social media. Someone calls 911 reporting two large figures in their backyard. They're very large. They look like aliens to us. Big eyes. They have big eyes like and big amount. An unknown and unidentified. It is moving into a restricted base. It is an incursion, in fact. Most people still hold the view that an alien invasion would be traditional invasion, shooting down fighter jets and buildings with the ray guns. But um, it's probably much more sophisticated than that. Into the paranormal. question remains whether or not we could defend ourselves against something like that, whether hypothetical or not. I'm Jeremy Scott. Is there evidence that we face this sort of threat before? We're talking with Paul Anthony Wallace. His website is paulanthonywallace.com. Links to that and to his book coming soon will be up at paranormalradio.com in the episode page. 503-506-0396 if you have questions or comments and you're in the United States or Canada. That's 503-506-0396. You can also Skype at ITP51. Paul was telling us uh, before the break about, well, giving us a teaser to what I'd like to him to expand on now, which is that some of these civilizations that man has encountered in the past 10,000 years have been violent, and they have used a variety of weapons against us. So, uh, Paul, please continue. For sure. Well, if you go to the Bible, for instance, they talk about the Elohim, the powerful ones who conquered us in the past, and they're described as a group as the Tseva Hashemayim. That means the sky armies, the airborne armies. So that tells you straight away they were perceived in a militaristic way. Deuteronomy 32 talks about how they carved up the territories and then ran them as colonies. And we've got detail of the weaponry they had, how it functioned, how destructive it was. In the book of Ezekiel, we hear about the Kedi Mapatho and the Kedi Mashato. Six individuals equipped with one of those can ethnically cleanse an entire district. Uh, one means a shattering thing. One means a disintegrating thing. And Ezekiel has shown this is how we maintain order over human populations. So it gets very, very graphic. And we're shown how Yahweh himself used that kind of technology, um, disintegrating 70,000 people in one action on one occasion. Well, when you think about the losses that Britain 
experienced in the Blitz or in individual attacks that um, other countries have experienced in the years since. That doesn't compare with 70,000 in a single day. That's a lot of violence. And can you imagine our ancestors, you know, before the age of the rifle, looking at beings with that level of technology? Of course, you're going to bow down to them and say, these are our superiors, these are our gods, which they did for some time. But then you get to 1 Samuel 15, and we reach a point where the people, even when faced with that kind of technology, said, no, we're not taking any more of this. And when they acted in solidarity with the attitude of, well, what can they do? They can only kill us. That's when fear loses its currency, and they're able to get rid of the particular Elohim that was governing over them. So that's one strand of story you'll find in the Bible, but it echoes all around the world that there was this unhappy period. But it's only part of a spectrum, as I was saying before. And I think in the present, we need to be doing more careful diplomacy, more careful exopolitics. I believe we have allies today every bit as much as in the past. And by that, you and mean need- reaching out to the ETs? I mean reaching out to all those who can be helpful to us, who have empathy with us. I don't think we should be bound by decisions made in the 1940s. Even if they're if on there other are planets? Others. Well, they're not. They are present. And this is what we hear from people like Ed Mitchell, the late Ed Mitchell and Hamer shared, that we're already in conversation. Okay. Part of David Grush's revelations is that we have access is to this the Galactic Federation? Pilots. So Hamish had called it the Galactic Federation. The Bible called it the Elba Adat, the Council of Powers. Robert Kirk, writing in the 1600s, called it the Secret Commonwealth. And so I think we need to make more careful politics at that level. If there are other demographics here who can support humanity, we need to be having conversations with them as well, and not bound by decisions that may have served us in 1947 but might not be serving us in the present. And I, again, say I think the more scrutiny is on on this, the better. I think we have helpers in the present every bit as much as we did in the deep past. I mentioned different forms. That really means different races. So any idea of how many different races man has known to uh, interact with over time? That's a wild question, uh, I know. When Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev was asked this question back in 2008, it was in the context of him saying, we've been in contact for a long time. Every new Russian prime minister is given a dossier of all the civilizations we're already in contact with. The journalist then said, how many? And he said, oh, I don't want to say I don't want to panic people, which I thought was rather a funny answer because I think what it already said had the potential of panicking people except that you look at everything that's been disclosed in the last five years since 2019 by the Pentagon. Acknowledgement of contact, entire craft, non-human biologics, contact for more than 70 years. There's no panicking. People are not panicked by this. And recent polling suggests that two-thirds of the American public are saying, yes, I'd more or less work that out for myself. Well, based on what I've heard and those I have talked to and I've asked, you know, people who have had some of these encounters, I would I would be safe to say that there are dozens of races that man has has interacted with. And perhaps it's even more than dozens. Yes, I think it really is a lot. I think once you are 
looking at space-time manipulation, it means people can get here from anywhere in the cosmos. Consider the size of the cosmos, do the maths, <laughs> and I think, yes, it adds up to a lot of people, a lot of civilizations in conversation, and many, many that would appear to feel they have a stakeholding in Project Earth. And at some point, not only might there have been war uh, among, say, us versus them, but perhaps uh, among the races themselves. Oh, yes. I mean, whether you're listening to the Indian Vedas or the Sumerian stories, the Greek, the Norse, the biblical stories, they all talk about the wars among the gods or the wars among the powerful ones. And the war is in space. That's where it plays out. So there's been conflict over this corner of the Milky Way. There's been conflict over the progress of Project Earth. But I think we've seen some kind of a stability over the last 70 years that suggests there's some kind of an uneasy truce uh, among the Galactic Federation as to how things should run here. I have a feeling because we've seen an acceleration of mass sightings and an acceleration of disclosure, there might be a little more movement in that council than we've seen in the past. Maybe that agreement to not, not disclose is not as watertight as it's been in the past. But I actually think that's exciting because I think if we've got helpers here, then we can push the conversation forward in, in positive ways. I mean, our answer is very interesting how much agreement there is in ancestral story that talks about people from Sirius and people from the Pleiades who are here with a very protective attitude towards Homo sapiens because they don't want to see us invaded in a traumatizing way or our planet invaded in a traumatizing kind of way. They are here to support the human story. And I think that's an aspect I'd like to shine more light on. So I, I want to go back to what we talked about earlier, because you bought, brought up the program, and that had me wondering about a shadow government. You know, if Congress is not responsible, it, does this go above that? You've used the, the term the program uh, a few more times tonight. I'd like you to describe that at length. What do you mean by the program, and who's behind it? The program is the Pentagon's name for the... Uh, research and development program that is focused on materials obtained from UFO retrievals with the purpose of reverse engineering them so that we have interstellar capability. Now, there's other technology that has come out of it, zero-point energy being one of them, gravity manipulation being another. But the goal is to get that technology to the point where we can ping into somebody's airspace on another planet in exactly the same way that craft ping into our airspace. The reason the USA is so much at the epicenter of this is because that's where all the dollars are that have gone into this program to reverse engineer. So it's not my name for it. It's the Pentagon's name for it. And if we listen to Hayam Ashed, for instance, it is important because that bar has been set not by our covert government, not by a shadow government, but by our visitors who are saying they're not going to self-disclose until we, as a human race, are at the level of knowing how to travel through space. When that happens, we become neighbours 
rather than items for um, analysis or observation. Paul, we have just a couple of moments left. I'd like you to take them and uh, give us some closing comments, please. Yes, I would say once again, we've always been in contact. And I think that we can be slightly misdirected if we spend all our time waiting for politicians to make headway with disclosure. I think if we listen to one another without the ridicule factor, without prejudice, we'll hear that there is far much more going on in terms of regular people having contact experiences, regular people having communication experiences. It's actually there in the New Testament in 1 John 4 that in primitive Christianity, contact experiences were expected. And I think we should be nurturing all the contact that is there. I don't want this conversation to be defined by shadowy corporate types speaking for the aerospace industry or a few privileged politicians. I think humanity as a whole needs to be having this conversation with our neighbors and pushing the relationship forward. And I believe that's possible. And do you think that this is going to catch uh, a wave of momentum globally, or is the United States solely going to be acting alone here? I think global interest really is building. I take my hat off to an Australian journalist, Ross Coulthard, who I think has been very significant in escalating the David Grush complaint to becoming a House hearing, leading to the legislative attempt to get disclosure last year. I do think momentum is building. The fact that the Pentagon is using the language of transparency shows that they're feeling under pressure to disclose more of what's going on, more of what the current iteration of contact means, and where we are up to in terms of the program and moving the conversation forward. Yeah, Russ uh, Ross has uh, certainly uh, been uh, involved in many of these uh, interviews in in moving the conversation from a, a journalist standpoint, uh, coming at a time when uh, most journalists, uh, you know, don't want to touch this. It's it's seemingly uh, not as taboo as it once was. No, and I think we need to be telling our mainstream news outlets we are interested in this story. We want the journalists to pursue it. Because I think most journalists are being told, don't pursue this, the editor's not interested. But again, I think if enough of us are speaking to our mainstream media and saying, no, keep your attention on this story, then I think we can keep the light of accountability on it. That's off to Ross Coulthard, but we need other journalists coming to the party. Yeah, Paul, tell us uh, again, the audience, uh, your website and, uh, and how they can get in contact with you. Sure. You can find me at paulanthonywallace.com and fifthkind.tv. You can find me on YouTube at The Fifth Kind and on the Paul Wallace channel. I'm in the comments every day. And if you'd like a longer conversation with me, come to my website, paulanthonywallace.com, and I will look forward to getting into conversation with you. So the book will be out in a couple months, right? April the 9th is the release date for The Invasion of Eden. Did our ancestors warn us about E.T. invasions and its history repeating itself in the 21st century? Thank you so much, Paul, and the best to you. Appreciate you on the program as always. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And we'll continue our conversation right after this, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and that. Into the paranormal.
I'm Jeremy Scott between the paranormal and abnormal, 503-506-0396 in the United States and Canada. That's 503-506-0396 in the U.S. and Canada. Or Skype callers, you can join us at ITP51. Take part in the conversation from anywhere in the world. Always enjoy our time with Paul Anthony Wallace. We've talked to him a couple occasions here on the program. He presents uh, very interesting hypotheses in his books, the Eden series, and uh, we highly recommend them as well. PaulAnthonyWallace.com wanted to give him another mention uh, because I screwed it up a couple of times earlier. It's PaulAnthonyWallace.com. And again, the book, The Invasion of Eden, uh, coming out. But if you haven't checked out the others, you can go ahead and just get those now. And uh, maybe you'll catch up uh, by the time that comes out in April. Uh, we're going to be at the McMinimins UFO Fest on May the 17th for a live broadcast. Come on out. We'll be announcing our lineup as soon as uh, they announce their speaker lineup. Contact in the Desert has announced their lineup as well. That's May 30th through June the 3rd. And uh, you can check out their speakers at contactinthedesert.com. And, of course, Oregon Ghost Conference is coming up for us as well. We will be uh, down in Seaside for live broadcasts on the 22nd, uh, excuse me, the 23rd and the 24th. The festivities, though, start on the 22nd down there in Seaside. And, of course, uh, we've got a full schedule, uh, our Into the Paranormal Roadshow coming up all year long. You can get those details at paranormalradio.com. Would love to see you at maybe one or two or three or uh, four, uh, however many we end up having uh, those stops along the way. So a very interesting uh, time to be living with the validation seemingly coming, but not getting a lot of attention, at least mainstream attention, that, hey, look, David Grush is... Legit, he he does have merit here. At least his claims do. Which we we knew that it, it, the scrutiny was going to come right after his claims, and it, they certainly did. And everybody had a right to scrutinize Mister Grush because I mean, here's this guy who appears right out of the blue and starts making these claims, and uh, you know he didn't really say it outright. Believe me. I want you to believe me, but there's a reason he went out there, and that was to become a whistleblower and to get these uh, these ideas circulating out in the mainstream. And boy, did they get uh, circulated in the mainstream. It got picked up uh, by publications all over the world, and of course, Monday morning quarterbacker, quarterbacks jump on David Grush questioning his credibility well it seems like mr grush has started a conversation that i don't know necessarily would have began had he not come to the forefront the timing certainly indicates that after he came forward the wheels really started moving quicker we started to see movement within congress uh, to hold additional hearings and briefings and to uh, put some legislation forward and there's going to be uh, additional legislation. There's been a, another bill that, of course, has been proposed uh, dealing with pilots. So it is not once an issue that is uh, being treated with, uh, you know, 
the label that these are the tinfoil hat kind of people who are making the claims that they've been seeing unidentified lights or whatnot in the sky. This is this is credible stuff uh, that our militaries are verifying, and the pathways are opening for additional reporters and witnesses to come forward and uh, with without the fear of retribution that they're going to be demoted, that they may lose everything they've worked for, um, no retaliation. Uh, the whistleblower protections. Uh, interesting day and time that we're we're living in, and of course, none of that would be necessary if all of this was just weather balloons, right? If all of it was weather balloons, we wouldn't need these protections in place. And so here we are. What does that tell you, friends? Until next week, from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. Check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to leave us a review. We'd appreciate that. Good night and God bless.